All right, we'll go ahead and get ourselves situated so we can begin our second hour. We are uh, working our way through this series, Discovering the Heart of Hope. And as we've been trying to remind you, uh, we've really desired and we would continue to encourage you to invite people to be here. This is uh, going to evolve into our uh, new members class, but we wanted everybody to be part of this and very grateful to Brother Joe for putting all of this together. And uh, he's going to share some comments about where he's going with uh, this particular study in just a moment. But uh, we'll open up with a word of prayer and then give our time and attention to uh, discovering the heart of hope. Just a couple of quick announcements. Again, reminder that the uh, Thursday night Home Bible Fellowship does not meet this week as the Family Unity Night on Friday night, our chili supper cook-off, 6.30. Bring your favorite chili. If you don't bring chili, you bring crackers or chips or dessert, whatever it might be, and we'll just enjoy a time of uh, fellowship and eating some good chili. I, I'm always amazed at the good chili. So you, so how many of you are got, got your recipes all together? Anybody? Okay. Well, get it together. That's all. <laughs> How's that? Well, let me open up with a word of prayer, and we will invite uh, Joe to come forward. Father God, we thank you once again for what a great privilege it is to be part of the body of Christ. Not by virtue of us having done anything, not even by virtue of us uh, being members of a particular church. We recognize that membership in the true body of Christ comes by faith in the blood and work of Christ on the cross. And so we rejoice in so great a Savior. We rejoice and we say, to him be the glory. Father, may we glorify your son now, even as we hear and listen to that which makes up the, the teachings and the doctrines of the church. We thank you for the blessing of being people who can know you and know you through your word and know your truth. And we desire to be a people who continually delight in the truths of your word. So bless our time together. Bless Joe as he comes and he uh, shares these truths with us. May it be that which brings encouragement and edifies us as a body. And uh, may it also be that which encourages us to be all the more diligent to spread the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we offer all of this to you and thank you for this time now in Jesus' name. blessed uh, to be uh, here with you again this afternoon, early morning, I guess, and uh, so excited about uh, continuing this study in discovering the heart of hope. And just to reemphasize, I know talked about it, I guess, every time for the past two weeks, but the whole picture in this is we're using this title as a metaphor of the heart of hope to be that from the heart flows the life of this church, and so we're endeavoring to walk through what is the basis and foundation of what comes from this church to bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I can't help but uh, think of, or I was thinking of this week as today, um, yeah, Peter, if you'd bring up the next slide there. What we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in session three is the biblical doctrines that hope stands on. Uh, Pastor Ed was very gracious to say we could go to four sessions here. So 
we'll pick up those last two points uh, in, in the next session after this. But I was struck this week uh, thinking about last Sunday, I'm sure none of us may remember exactly, but I had endeavored to share what's, why is it important to study doctrines of the Christian faith? How, how do these things help encourage us and how can we draw from them? And it may be because I'm an old guy, but for some reason, I've really been thinking about a day. I know a day is coming for me as it is for all of us when we will depart this earthly life. And I've always prayed, Father, I pray that when that comes for me, that my mind will be there. I want to be able to think and to reason. And I want to be able to draw back on what is the hope that I will have in my heart that day. And the last point of those lists from last Sunday, why is it important to study the doctrines of our faith? The last point was because doctrine leads to life. And that's exactly what Pastor preached so gloriously this, this morning, the earlier hour, was about this hope that we have. It's an eternal hope. And I, for me, I want, Father, I pray that that day my mind will be crisp enough to be able to pull from these doctrines that we talk about this very morning. So I'll know that this isn't some imagination I have, but that the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and the most amazing thing of that is that that work's been applied to my life, that it will bring great joy and peace in that day. Well, again, we're going to look <coughs> this morning at the biblical doctrines that hope stands on. So the very first of these, and kind of going back again to last week, if you can pull up the next slide, um, is if you remember, went through the trilogy of doctrines, and there were three, three points in that. The first one, the, the pinnacle of that was the core doctrines, and then the next ones was the distinctive doctrines, and then the last of those points is the characteristic doctrines. And this, again, really is something from Dr. Moeller's explanation, which is so clear of that. But we've drawn from that same basis to look at our doctrines. And so as we begin this morning, we look at the core doctrines. And these will be the same doctrines from last week that we looked at that all that Christianity stands on. And I will use the word a lot, biblical Christianity. We're in a day and time when so many claim to be Christians. And I have found, I have a sense of my own heart in sharing the gospel to make it clear that what I am talking about, by God's grace, is biblical Christianity. So last week we looked at these core doctrines, and the core doctrines for hope are the same as the ones that we found there. There are four of these doctrines that we stand on as core. And let me just read what this means. Hope holds to these, those doctrines most central and essential to the Christian faith. Included among those these most crucial doctrines would be the doctrines such as the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, justification by faith, and, and the authority of Scripture. The first one, the doctrine of the Trinity, the early church clarified and documented its understanding that the one true and living God by affirming the full deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That uh, we insist that the Bible reveals one God in three persons. The second of these core doctrines is the doctrine of the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And these were done, we speak, uh, spoke about it last uh, Sunday, about the councils at Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon, 
where it was firmly established and vindicated that Christ, uh, that the Christianity stands or falls on the affirmation that Jesus is truly God and truly man. The third one, I know I emphasized it last week, and I will again today, is the doctrine of justification by faith. And this is what I had in my notes. I said, in addition to the Christological and Trinitarian doctrines, the doctrine of justification by faith must also be included among those core doctrines. This is what's so important. Without this doctrine, we are left with a denial of the gospel itself, and salvation is transformed into some structure of human righteousness. The teaching of justification by faith is what separates biblical Christianity from all other belief systems. I want that all to sink in. This is what our faith is established on justification by faith and faith alone in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that important that we hold that in our hearts and be able to articulate that's where we stand. In every, in every religion and in some branches of what is called, quote, Christianity, man is working his way to God. Only in true biblical Christianity is man saved as a result of grace through faith. Only when we get back to the Bible do we see that justification is by faith apart from works. The scriptures that are so clear to us, I would be willing to bet if I said, who can recite for me Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? We'd have half the church stand up. Uh, it's where or you have been saved by grace, and that only is through faith, which is a gift of God, not of works that any should boast. Another scripture from Romans 5, one is, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification is essential to our understanding. We were just, my wife and I were walking yesterday, and there's a wonderful couple we meet in our walks, and and I think they're truly, everything in their life is a manifestation of coming to faith in Christ. And so somehow I got off on preaching and was talking about these very elements with him. And I thought, it's so good, and I've had to learn this, is to come back to this point that we are saved by faith. Like, it, like the note had said here, like I just read, every other system on the face of the earth is a system by works somehow earning your way to God, somehow appeasing God in and of your own efforts. And so it's so important that biblical Christianity stands on faith in Christ alone. The fourth of these doctrines, uh, our core doctrines, is, a, is that of the authority of Scripture, and the truthfulness and authority of the Holy Scriptures must also rank as a core doctrine. For without an affirmation of the Bible as the very Word of God, we're left without any adequate authority for distinguishing truth from error. That's one other thing that uh, God in his mercy has revealed. I've just had a sense of in talking to people that have a stand outside of true biblical Christianity is if you have an opportunity to discuss faith, faith discuss eternity, discuss salvation with someone, try to establish what is the basis for what their belief is. What I have found is many quote, religions, what would call themselves Christian religions, they will say, oh, we believe in the Bible, but the reality is if there's something above the Bible in their understanding. I was raised, I've saved, shared with so many people from Catholicism and to the Catholic faith to Rome, what is at the very pinnacle of their beliefs is the traditions of man. And you say, well, 
let's study the Bible. We believe in the Bible, but it's not at the top. And so you have to understand that we have Mormons, neighbors, and you understand that their standing is not in the Word of God. It is in the Book of Mormon and so on and so forth. So how important it is, this doctrine of the authority of Scripture. Well, let's go to the next slide. Uh, we're there. Uh, and this is perhaps um, one of the more interesting uh, aspects of this uh, aspect of the doctrines between core and distinctive and characteristic, this triage. In distinctive doctrines, I'm going to read again this definition of these doctrines. I said, this set of doctrines is distinguished from the core set by the fact that believing Christians may disagree on the distinctive issues. The set of second order doctrines is distinguished from the first set by believing that believing Christians may disagree on second-order issues. Though this disagreement will create significant boundaries between believers, when Christians organize themselves into congregations and denominational forms, these boundaries become evident. So I, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on the distinctives of hope and what our doctrines, these distinctive doctrines are. And there's three of them that we have listed here. The very first one is Reformed theology, and the second one is believer's baptism, and the third one is the complementarian roles for men and women in the church. Such important doctrines to consider. So uh, first of all, looking at Reformed theology, and one of the things that's been a joy, I'm kind of jumping around this morning, has been uh, the questions that I've gotten from the previous two sessions. and. <laughs> looking this morning and two of the questions I got last week that I don't think I answered correctly they're not here today <laughs> I was going to try to correct that but I'm saying this to say please have questions but the third one is from our brother Eric and it's so good I don't know if you remember you asked me a question brother but you did and it had to do with reformed theology and this gentleman that again my wife Tina and I were talking with yesterday, just walking, uh, I was boasting in the Lord and boasting somewhat in our church and said, oh, we're a Reformed church. And he knows that we love the Lord, but he looked at me with that glazed look like, oh, that sounds a little scary. <laughs> and I understand it, it, it can do that. So it's really important that we spend some time looking at this our first of our distinctive doctrines. So let me, as I like to read off the notes I have, hope holds to reformed theology, which traces its roots back to the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. It must be emphasized that the reformers themselves trace their doctrine to scripture, their credo being sola scriptura. Clearly, reformed theology is not a new belief system, but one that seeks to continue apostolic doctrine. So on slide five, what I've got up here is what distinguishes Reformed theology from other biblically-based Christian theologies? I hope this answer will clear up a lot of things. I've been asked before what this means. My own children who go to a good evangelical church, but they know that dad's Reformed, and they will say, what does that mean? And my tendency will go through the doctrines of grace, will go through the acrostic tulip, and I'm realizing it's a lot of different points. So I pray, I believe this is the root of it, 
So let's walk through this together. What it is that distinguishes Reformed theology from other biblically-based Christian theologies. We have to start with the meaning of theology. Theology proper refers to a focus on the doctrine of God as distinguished from the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of justification, or some other doctrine. Theology proper focuses on the understanding and the nature and the character of God himself. That's what the very word is, theology, the study of God. So we have to look at this to be able to understand how we stand on this Reformed theology. With this study, it is perhaps God's attribute of sovereignty that most clearly distinguishes Reformed theology from other Christian theologies. Specifically, God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation, the reconciling of sinners to himself. It's the hard thing. This is the key. This is a point that we can make when they say, what do you mean you're reformed to bring glory and honor to our sovereign God? Much of evangelism refuses to grant God's sovereignty when it comes to the salvation of sinners as though this refusal actually could change the fact of his sovereignty. They are willing to grant much of the credit for the work of Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit's work in drawing men to faith, but they're not willing to admit God is in complete control, for this is precisely what sovereignty is, complete control, of the salvation of lost sinners. Granted, men have a role to play in this process, but clearly God is in control, complete control of the process. I've got a quote here from Charles Spurgeon that I think so clearly, as Brother Spurgeon did so well, defines what, we're, what I'm speaking of in this sovereignty of God and salvation. Spurgeon begins. He says, first then, divine sovereignty as exemplified in salvation. If any man be saved, he is saved by divine grace and by divine grace alone. The reason of his salvation is not to be found in him, but in God. We are not saved as a result of anything that we do or that we will, but we will and do, listen, as a result of God's good pleasure and the work of his grace in our hearts. No sinner can prevent God. That is, he cannot, this is so good, he cannot go before him, cannot anticipate him. God is always first in the matter of salvation. He is before our convictions, before our desires, before our fears, before our hopes. All that is good or ever will be good in us is preceded by the grace of God and is the effect of divine cause within that's Reformed faith. We hold to this, that God is sovereign in saving sinners. And it will fly, I shouldn't say it, it will cause up this distinction that will cause a separation in other believers. I have known and, know to, and still know and still am in contact with brothers and sisters in Christ that are, we put them in the category not belittling them in any way, but there are many. They, they don't hold to this. And that's the great thing. And, and we have to come up and say an understanding and say that, you know, it's that thing to say we'll have to 
agree to disagree on this point, but we as a reformed people, we hold firmly to this, that God is sovereign in all the affairs of all of his creation and most centrally in that of saving sinners. So that's a point, uh, hopefully, that we can all recall whenever we have the opportunity to discuss the Reformed tradition that we hold to. Let me go on in this, uh, other points having to do uh, with this distinctive. Reformed theology holds to the authority of scripture, the sovereignty of God, salvation by grace, and the necessity of evangelism. First point is authority of scripture. The Bible is the inspired word of God, sufficient in all matters, of faith and practice. The sovereignty of God, certainly as we just went over, God rules with absolute control over all of creation. He has foreordained all events and is therefore never disturbed by circumstances. His sovereign rule does not make him the author of sin nor limit the will of the creature. The next point is salvation by grace. God in his grace and mercy has chosen to redeem a people to himself, delivering them from sin and death. The Reformed doctrine of salvation is commonly represented by the acrostic tulip, which also is known as the five points of Calvinism. Now I can uh, assume that many of us may have had an opportunity in discussing with unbelievers or even believers this thing of being Reformed. And if the word Calvinistic, Calvinism comes up, it can immediately raise a barrier between those people. So I wanna just give you a little bit of a history exactly where this has come from because it didn't come from John Calvin. Just a note I've got historically here. I said after the death of John Calvin in 1564, theologians holding to his teachings reformed their doctrine regarding predestination and developed the tenets for what we now have as the doctrines of grace. It was at the Synod of Dort in 1618, which was 100 years after Luther's 95 Theses were posted upon the church in Wittenberg, that Calvinists from the Dutch Reformed Church condemned Jacob Arminius' five-point stand on the partial versus total depravity of man. This was a point that he took, Jacob Arminius, is that he claimed, unlike Reformed faith does, we claim that man is totally depraved, that we have no standing before God, that everything in us, our heart is cold and separated from the things of God. Arminius claimed that it was a partial hardening. And so this is where actually what we now have as the tooler for the doctrines of grace came about is because these men, they were called Calvinists because they followed the teachings of John Calvin. But it was from this, the rebuttal that they gave to the stand of Arminius that these five points of Calvinism came up. And so we love these. I, again, if would ask our congregation this morning, can you walk through the acrostic tulip? I would be willing to bet most of us can. But let's do journey together through this just to understand again the scriptural base for these different points in the tulip. So first of all, the T points to total depravity. Man is completely helpless in his sinful state, is under the wrath of God, and in can no way please God. Total depravity also means that man will not naturally seek to know God until God graciously prompts him to do so. I think it's the most staggering of the verses that we probably know familiar from Romans chapter three, 
it was this one verse in here that really shook my, even at that time coming to faith in Jesus Christ, I was staggered by this, and it's actually the verse 11 in which Paul wrote, not only there are none good, there are none righteous, and then it's in verse 11 where he says, there are none who seek God. It shook me because even having come to faith in Christ, somehow in my old the flesh that still dwells in us that we battle, I wanted to take some credit for this. And I have five other siblings in my family, and at that time, no one else had left. I was raised in a very staunch Catholic family, and no one else had left. And I would say, well, Joe, it's really good that you heard the gospel and you made the decision to come. So I love these words of Paul. I didn't see God. You didn't see God. Christ came, said, I came to seek and to save the righteous. So to his glory alone be it. So we are totally depraved. The next point in the tulip is the you. It's the unconditional election. God from eternity past has chosen to save a great multitude of sinners, not based on any merit on their behalf, but solely according to the good pleasure of his will. Wonderful scripture, glorious scripture, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Paul writing, just as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. People may ask you, you may ponder yourself, as I've pondered, why is it that I've come to know the grace of God? And it has, that verse says it so well, it is solely for the good pleasure of God's will. People may ask you and they'll look at you and they'll look like we stand with some pride. We're boasting in this salvation that we've come to know. It has nothing to do with us to begin with. And it has nothing to do with anything of merit in us. The choosing, the predestining, the calling, the justification that God does in sinners is solely for the good pleasure of his will. Well, the next point is the one that a lot of contention comes up. It's the L, which is for limited atonement. It's also called a particular redemption. And Christ took the judgment for the sins of the elect upon himself and therefore paid for their lives with his death. In other words, he did not simply make salvation possible. He actually obtained it for those whom he had chosen. You talk about a humbling doctrine is to realize everything about these doctrines if we consider them and be still before God, they are the doctrines that will make us tremble and just be amazed at his grace and mercy. What this is saying is that Christ came to purchase the church. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, comparing it to the love of a husband. Love and husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So Christ came very particularly to redeem his sheep, those that the Father had given him. So how glorious and beautiful is this doctrine. The next, the eye is for irresistible grace. In his fallen state, man resists God's love. But the grace of God working in his heart makes his desire what he had previously resisted. That is, God's grace will not fail to accomplish 
is saving work in the elect. John 6, 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. There's a great scripture, uh, again, that Christ speaks about and that John recorded in John chapter 6 where he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. And I'll never forget a brother telling me, he says, if you look at that Greek word draw, that word can be uh, translated as drag. And I, he was really proud of that because he had resisted God, but he had come to faith in Christ. Well, the last one is the P, and it's the perseverance of the saints. And God protects his saints from falling away. The salvation is eternal. John 10, 27 through 29, the words of Christ. These are humbling words indeed. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I was mentioning earlier that on that day, whenever it may be, it could be soon or it may be a while, when this earthly life of mine comes to an end, I want to think and dwell upon that. I want to think about this one has given me eternal life and that nothing can ever take that from me. Uh, so many glorious pictures here of God's preserving his people. Well, the last point is something I know doesn't fall on deaf ears here at Hope, but this last point is the point of necessity of evangelism. And Reformed theology teaches that Christians are in the world to make a difference, spiritually through evangelism and socially through holy living and humanitarianism. And it's so important. They can, in, in talking to people before I used to have, my late wife and I had a, a couple that we just loved in the Lord and were, were really instrumental in helping us grow in our faith but they were from South Dakota. And so uh, they moved back up there and, and talking to them, it's been many years ago. And I talked, his name, my brother's name was Jim, and uh, said, yeah, Jim, I've come to the Reformed faith. Well, to them, the Reformed faith was of the Dutch reform, and it had a bad connotation because the Dutch reform fall under the category of the hyper-Calvinists. They are the ones who believe because God's sovereign in saving sinners that we don't need to be about sharing the gospel. But that's contrary to scripture, contrary to the words of Christ. It's contrary to Matthew chapter 28. So it's so important, and again, I know I'm preaching as it was to the choir here, but we are to be about bringing the gospel to all those around us in our life. Well, let's move to the next uh, segment of the distinctive doctrines, and we're gonna look at the, uh, our distinctive for the doctrine of hope it's believers baptism and some points if I can again go through my notes believers baptism is the act by which a believer in Jesus Christ chooses to be baptized in order to give testimony of their faith believers baptism is also called credo baptism a term that comes from the Latin word for creed indicating that baptism is a symbol of a person adopting a certain doctrine or creed. I really like that definition because I think that's what believer's baptism speaks of. Believer's baptism is clearly taught in Acts chapter two. In this chapter, Peter is preaching the gospel message on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. 
In the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter boldly proclaims Jesus' death and resurrection and commands the crowd to repent and believe in Christ. Let me read from Acts, those verses from Acts chapter 2. Peter's words, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 41 of that same chapter, the response to Peter's gospel presentation is given in 41, and it continues on, Then those who were glad, who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Note the order of events. They accepted the message, the gospel of Christ, and then they were baptized. Only those who believed were baptized. We see the same order in chapter 16 when the Philippian jailer and his family are saved. They believed, then they are baptized. The practice of the apostles was to baptize believers, not unbelievers. Believers' baptism is distinguished from infant baptism in that an infant who has no understanding of the gospel cannot be a believer in Christ. Believer's baptism involves a person hearing the gospel, repenting of their sinfulness, accepting Christ as Savior, and choosing to be baptized. It is his or her choice. In In infant baptism, the choice is made by someone else, not the child being baptized. Well, the third of the distinctives we hold at hope is one, I know a question came up. It was actually from our sister Beth, and she's not here today, so I could have answered it, but we're going to look at it today. It says complementarian roles for men and women within the church. Complementarianism is the teaching that masculinity and femininity are ordained by God and that men and women are created to complement or complete each other. Complementarians believe that the gender roles found in the Bible are purposeful and meaningful distinctions that when applied in the home and church promote the spiritual health of both men and women. Embracing the divinely ordained roles of men and women furthers the ministry of God's people and allows men and women to reach their God-given potential. In the church, complementarianism follows 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through chapter 3, 7 as the model. Biblically, the men in the church bear the responsibility to provide spiritual leadership and training. The women are to exercise their spiritual gifts in a way that scripture allows. The only prohibition is to teach or assume authority over a man from 1 Timothy 2, 12. When men and women are fulfilling their God-given roles within a church, Christ is honored. The church itself becomes what is designed to be a living picture of Christ's body. Is this an important, distinctive doctrine? I don't know if many of you uh, had a reason, but I followed the uh, Southern Baptist Convention from back in June of this year. And this has been a contention in the Southern Baptist tradition for some five years, but I think it came to a head at this convention this year. And because of theirs and giving glory to God for the Baptist stand on this biblical stand, 
is that there, this is what's interesting to me, five churches were defellowshipped from the Baptist Convention this year because they would not repent, would not turn from having women teach and preach in the pulpit and so be an authority and so be counter to work God, to Paul's words in 1 Timothy. So is this important for our day and time? It's becoming so. And so by God's grace and certainly surprisingly hope clings to this complementarianism that God again has, has given roles to men and women uh, for their use in the family certainly but also in the church. If there are questions on this, we're going to have questions at the end if I'm speedy here. Well, let's look at the, uh, now go to the characteristic doctrines of hope. Uh, this next one, and actually as the slide has, there's three of these. First one is a dispensational view of God's plan for the ages. The second is a premillennial view of Christ's second coming. And the third is a pre-tribulation view of the rapture. A dispensational a dispensation is a way of ordering things, an administration, a system, or a management. Dispensationalism sees the scripture unfolding in a series of typically seven dispensations. A dispensation can be defined as a particular means God uses to deal with man and creation during a given time of redemptive history. There are the primary opposing view, I just want to make this note, um, the opposing view to dispensationalism is covenant theology. And covenant theology looks through scripture as a grid of a covenant. Covenant theology, unlike dispensationalism, which sees God's working and managing his human uh, humanity on this earth in seven distinct dis dispensations, Covenant theology sees that in two. They have a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And they begin the covenant of works begins in the garden when God created Adam and Eve and to them gave the, uh, gave the command uh, imperative to go and to be about works. And they claim that this works goes all the way through all of human history. And overarching that is the covenant of grace. So that is the, in a very general uh, description of covenant theology as opposed to dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has two primary distinctives. The first of these is in dispensationalism, we hold to a consistent literal interpretation of scripture, particularly Bible prophecy. And number two is we hold to a view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church in God's program. Let me just go into these points a little bit more. So hope holds to a literal interpretation of the Bible as the best hermeneutic. The literal interpretation gives each word the meaning it would commonly have in everyday usage. Allowances are made for symbols, figures of speech, and types, of course. It is understood that even symbols and figurative sayings have literal meanings behind them. So for example, and this is so important from Revelation 20, when the Bible speaks of a thousand years in Revelation 20, dispensationalists interpret it as a literal period of 1,000 years, the dispensation of the millennial kingdom, in fact, since there is no compelling reason to interpret it otherwise. The second point is concerning the uniqueness of Israel as compared to the church. Hope believes that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in the God of the Old Testament and specifically the God the Son in the New Testament. Hope holds that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program and that the Old Testament promises to Israel have not been transferred to the church. Hope teaches that the promises of God made to Israel in the Old Testament for land, many descendants, and blessings will ultimately be fulfilled in the thousand-year period spoken of in Revelation 20. Hope believes that just as God is in this age focused in his attention on the church, he will again in the future focus his attention on Israel. I had been a part uh, of a church uh, many years ago that had held this replacement theology. And I love the church. It's the first reformed church I came to, but they were of the covenant dispensation. They were of the covenant theology as opposed to dispensationalism. And it really took me a while to be able to sort out exactly where they were coming because they spoke as if the church had come along and had usurped or taken the position of Israel. But it's not what we hold to. What we believe scripture clearly teaches is that God has a unique plan for Israel that has not been set in full motion yet, but that what Paul says in Romans so well is it's in the fullness of Gentiles come in, then he will turn to Israel. And most precious things, we're so mindful of Israel in this day and time and this, the tragedy of the war that's going on. And so as pastor had led us to do to pray for Israel, pray for the peace of Israel, pray for the salvation of Israel. And it's staggering now to consider that if I'm not mistaken, that over 95% of Jews living in Israel, or perhaps all Jews, are agnostic at best and atheist. And it's just shattering. But the prophets wrote that the day when Christ comes for them, that the remnant of Israel, the Jews that will be saved, will weep for his appearing. And I think of that day. We are like that now. We, we tremble before the realization that Christ died and rose for our salvation. And one day they too will weep when the realization of that comes. Well, the second of the characteristic uh, doctrines for us is the premillennial view of Christ's second coming. And premillennialism is a view that Christ's second coming will occur prior to his millennial kingdom. And that the millennial kingdom is a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth. In order to understand and interpret the passages in scripture that deal with end time events, there are two characteristics that must be clearly understood. A prophet method of, of interpreting scripture, literal as we take it, and the distinction between Israel and the church as I just mentioned. So number one again is a proper method of interpreting scripture requires that scripture be interpreted in a way that is consistent with its context. This means that a passage must be interpreted in a way that is consistent with the audience to which it's written, that, uh, that it's written to those it was written about, whom it was written by. It's critical to know the author, the intended audience, and historical background uh, each passage one interprets. When I was considering these points, I go back and I think I shared last Sunday during our session that uh, when God's providence, when he saved me, saved my family, that we were part of a, um, of a charismatic church. And um, 
in that view, uh, it was some of these distinctives that I now know and cling to uh, were totally twisted and, and distorted. And so it was so awesome to think about and consider uh, this picture that is going to be a literal 1,000-year reign on this earth when Christ does come for his church. The second point in this is to apply these principles of an biblical interpretation. It must be seen that Israel, Abraham's physical descendants, and the church and New Testament believers are two distinct groups. Going back to that charismatic days is that they would teach that all the promises that we see in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, which are promises God had made to Israel, apply to us in the New Covenant. And so it made it easy to be, the, uh, be under the teaching of the health and the wealth and the prosperity. And I remember thinking, can that really be? And, and Lord, working in my own life, my late wife had a, a very traumatic, uh, she had a brain aneurysm, was in the hospital for three months uh, and had a stroke. And I can remember so distinctly being under this teaching as if I could pray and, and you know what? I could almost command God because I'm a man of faith that, that my wife should rise up off the bed of affliction. And I'll never forget in, in the ICU after the surgery, and we came in, so many in the church were in that ICU room with her, and she recognized every one of us, and it was just like, and I thought, this is it. She'll, we're going to go home in a week. Well, the very next day I went in that room, and she quit speaking, and she didn't recognize anyone, and that would be the case for three months. And I want to tell you, my faith struggled because my faith was based on if I had enough faith, she should rise up off of us. And all the promises of the old covenant, we see many promises. God says, if you will obey me, you will be blessed. If you disobey me, you will be cursed. And so I'd cling to those things, and they were not scriptural. They were not biblical. And how glorious it was to come to the hope that we have in Christ that carries us through these valleys in life. And what I found in that valley, and I trust that many of you could uh, testify of the same thing, it was in the valley of that, and it was deep, that I saw Christ clearer than I had ever seen him before. And to his glory came out on the other side, to his honor, loving him more than I did going in. And so it's so important to understand how we hold to these truths at hope, and certainly it is that we see a separation between Israel and between the church. Well, the last of these points is characteristic points is that of the pre-tribulation view of the rapture. And pre-tribulation teaches that the rapture occurs before the tribulation starts. At that time, the church will meet Christ in the air, and then sometime after that, the Antichrist will be revealed and the tribulation begins. In other words, the rapture and Christ's second coming to set up his kingdom are separated by at least seven years. According to this view, the church does not experience the wrath of God poured out during the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, uh, Paul writes, he says, For God did not appoint us, speaking to believers, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should be together with him. So it's certainly as the world is shaking and trembling in our day. And we probably all anticipate that we're in these days. We're in the day of the Lord coming. It's close at hand. 
And so the great promise from 1 Thessalonians is one that I know we all cling and hold to, and we certainly do here at Hope. Well, that uh, takes us through quickly, as has been the case of these uh, three different, the core doctrines, distinctive doctrines, and characteristic doctrines. So uh, we do have uh, a few minutes. We're just wondering um, if there's any questions. Uh, I want to correct, uh, Brother Brett asked a question last time, and uh, I don't always think real quickly on my feet, so I answered it wrong. He said, "How? where does it fit between an elder-led church or an elder-ruled church? And I quickly, off the top of my head without thinking, I said, I think it would fit in the distinctives think that's right because it is not something that would separate our fellowship we know large churches that are elder ruled they have to come under elder just because of their size we talked about it at length last uh, Sunday that we're an elder led congregational style church and it works well here but if you have a large church you have to have elder rule so I'm mistaken no answer to Brett that I think it's cares uh, characteristic and it was Beth that brought up the thing about the role of women in the church. I hope tried to address that complementarian view. And it was Eric that asked me, "How do you? What's a reformed church? How do we answer that question?" So I pray we try to answer it. So, so are there any any questions this morning? Yes, Pat. Yeah, and I don't know, you know, it was really early in my walk, so, <clears throat> uh, and they probably spoke and preached as if they were from a dispensational view, but they would go to the Old Testament and pull the earthly promises to apply to the church. I remember years ago in understanding that uh, is that the promises that God Jehovah Yahweh made to the people of Israel, to the faithful ones, they were mainly earthly promises. They were of prosperity in the land. They were of blessings on this earth. Certainly, there's a remnant who were saved only by God's grace through faith in the coming of the Redeemer, not understanding who he was or what that would look like. But their faith was in God to save them. So that was a part of it. But largely, those promises in the Old Testament were of earthly promises. And it dawned on me, if you read the New Testament, the new covenant which Christ instituted in his blood, these promises are heavenly promises. They are not earthly promises per se, but they are primarily uh, heavenly promises. We are sojourners and pilgrims in this world. Our home is not here. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we all eagerly await being part and participating in that citizenship. So is there anything anything else? This will break a record if we end early, but <laughs> yes, Gina. Amen. It's That's such a great, great point. John chapter 16, I think. 
Christ did promise, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. But what did he say? But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And it's the thing that we hold to. Starting back where I began today, these are things I want in my mind that day. One day, this old Joe will have a portal before me, and this early life will end, and I'm going, it's by his grace to see him. I just was sharing with Ed after his wonderful sermon today, heaven is not so much a place, heaven is a person. And that's what, that's all I can think of is him. <laughs> and so, anyway, great point. Yes, Ed. a great explanation and again just from my experience because um, uh, we got a few minutes here uh, my experience is what happened in my life I was part of this little church this charismatic church like I said my late wife had had a brain aneurysm and it in looking back at it it's more than one of the most wonderful things that ever happened in my life it certainly wasn't at the time it was heart-wrenching in my whole life, in my family's life, everything was changed after that because my late wife, whom I loved, she was not the same after coming through that stroke and aneurysm. But the thing that happened, like I mentioned that valley, is coming out of that, the things that were empty in the charismatic thing, and there was an emptiness in my heart, I found them in the gospel. The Lord led me from that church to a Baptist church shared with somebody just earlier, I think it was Ed, that instead of spending all our time fighting the devil in the charismatic church, I came to know about the blood of Christ. I had never heard preaching on the blood of Christ, and I was broken to understand that. So that's a great, great explanation. And it doesn't mean that we may have friends that are charismatic or in those tight churches, but just always stand as I know you will do on these glorious solid doctrines that bring glory to God above all. The thing is with my life back then, part of it was bringing glory to Job and my quote faith and those kind of things and what I love about the reformed faith is now all glory goes to God as Pastor Ed preached so well. So it's a marvelous, marvelous
Yes, yes, sir. Uh, well, that's a great point. 